This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. The Devil Wears Prada is a six-piece American metalcore band from Dayton, Ohio. Formed in 2005, the band remains fronted by original screaming vocalist Mike Haranica and guitarist clean vocalist Jeremy DePoister. The group has released seven full-length albums with an eighth coming this year, as well as three concept EPs. The Devil Wears Prada, often abbreviated as TDWP, has endured the ebbs and flows of a volatile scene that has lacked stability for nearly a decade with the loss of Vans Warped Tour and the changing nature of record industry monetization. Despite this, the band have managed to persevere through member instability and significant label changes to continue to produce music that demonstrates growth whilst also retaining their signature metalcore sensibilities. One of the earliest examples of Christian metalcore in the scene, TDWP have never been afraid to wear their faith on their sleeves. And though their earliest records are filled with worship, TDWP, like Under Oath and Maylene and the Sons of Disaster before them, presented their faith as a lived experience, rather than an imposition, allowing both Christian and secular fans to enjoy their music equally. I'm Paul, alongside me is Nick, and today on Violence and Sunshine, we're exploring The Devil Wears Prada. Straight off the bat here, I've got to say, I love The Devil Wears Prada. I've really loved them for a long time. I've kind of stuck with them from their novelty early days to their more mature present days. But as I was listening to them this week, I got a little bit worried that I'd thrust something really heavy upon you because I, I know that this isn't always your thing. You, you've got your roots in metal, you know, your As I Lay Dyings and things like that. So it's not a shock to you. But I did get a little bit worried that I'd maybe just gone a bit overboard with the heaviness this week. How are you holding up? Was this a bit too much? <laughs> well, man, that that's like you've mentioned it before about this band. Um, uh, like I don't know uh, The Devil Wears Prada all that well other than, you know, a few random songs over the years that either we've listened to together or um, from back even kind of like late, late high school, like maybe right getting towards the end of year 12, these guys were sort of coming out and there were a song or two that was being played. But other than that, I didn't really know them that well and, and I was kind of like, yeah, expecting this brutally heavy band because that's what I assumed they were. And I was going along, I was listening to the early, you know, Dear Love. I was listening through Plagues and I was kind of like, I don't know, these these guys aren't that heavy. Not not that they're not that heavy, but like I've heard this level of heaviness before, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So, man, I was kind of like listening through and then this song just hit me, man. And I think I now know what all the hype's about with these guys being heavy. So let's just play a little bit of the Scorpion Deathlock now. Holy shit, man. <laughs> that. We're not fucking around. We're kicking things off pretty early with the heaviness here. I fucking love that song. And I love that bit, man. That is what I want. I want absolute just brutality from these guys. That's what I'm absolutely loving. The heaviness. 
the multiple screams from Mike, like that stuff is right up my alley. It, the novelty factor I love, and for a band to be able to go that ridiculously heavy, since Shivers Man, I fucking loved it. That's so cool. I'm so glad that this early in the show, we're kind of talking about that like brutality, that heaviness, that kind of ultimate emotional expression. Because if you think that is heavy, have you heard this? Here we are. The heaviest song. So emotive. So brutal. Um, oh, man. Just, there's nothing like it. I didn't, uh, I didn't even think that I'd already heard something more brutal than the Scorpion Deathlock. It, yeah, there it is. There it is, though. That. Yeah. That. It's certainly a brutal listen. <laughs> oh, dear. You know, we're off to a flying start here, but we can never quite get past an opportunity to showcase Jimmy Tony's amazing Blank Expression cover song there. But really talking about the Devil Wears Prada, this is a band that reminds me of some dudes we've spoken about before, this kind of year younger than us at school crew. You know, we've talked about the Nash of the band. We've got Greblo, who's a mainstay on this show. But but someone we haven't mentioned is Dangers, uh, the drummer from Famous for Failing, the, I think, vocalist from Happy on a Sunday. Yeah, yeah. A real stalwart of the scene. But he was someone <laughs> that I really attached to this band. And I thought, if we're doing the Devil Wears Prada, I really need to reach out to Dangers and hear what he has to say. So he left us a little message. Let's hear from him now. Please leave your message after the beep. Boys, hope you're well. Big fan. Now, first thing that comes to mind when I think of Devil Wears Prada would probably be so the uh, breakdown from the dogs and grow beards all over. Used to think that was legendary back in the day. Absolutely loved it. It uh, really had its own sort of style to it for a breakdown listening to it now you know it's still sick but probably more basic than i remember probably hasn't aged as well as i would have thought so i'd uh, love to hear your guys thoughts on that specific breakdown and you know obviously any other memorable parts from those early albums because it's been a while and i look forward to going back and listening so thanks a lot guys now that you've mentioned Dangers and the Devil Wears Prada in the same sentence, that rings a very true bell. Like, I remember, uh, along with your kind of love for these guys, Dangers and Nash and that crew were really, really into them. And I think outside of that kind of, like, very novelty breakdown, which we definitely will get to, I, I remember these guys, and especially Dangers, just being obsessed with these bands that would have ridiculous song titles. And I think especially the earlier stuff from the Devil Wears Prada, you got songs like that. Dogs can grow beards all over. You got sword, swords, dragons, and diet coke. You can't spell crap without C. Like that is just right up Danger's alley. And I don't know if you remember, man, but he was he was dead set. I, I am adamant he hasn't gone through with it. But he was dead set from about the age of sixteen that he was going to get a tattoo that was a Times New Roman tattoo written in Times New Roman, <laughs> and he I thought it this. was the the most novelty thing ever that he was going to just get that written in that font and that was going to be kind of like I, I guess all that kind of coming together that silliness from the scene I don't, he never did it I'm very disappointed in the man that he didn't but no you guys were were into these guys I kind of miss them a little but I'm really looking forward to doing a, a deeper dive on on some of their stuff today it definitely was an interesting time you know it was fluoro t-shirts and and weird cartoony designs you remember that shit that I used to wear like there was <laughs> yeah. this kind of novelty element to this side of metal and I remember it really pissed off true metalheads but again it was a way for us emos to access this heavier stuff like 
I couldn't go to, you know, a Lamb of God show dressed the way that I was dressed. But the Devil Wears Prada play, they're just as heavy, but they've got some nicer haircuts and some nice clothes. And I feel a little bit safer in that environment. And I think that's what appealed to us emos. Like this is heavier than the stuff we generally (laughs) liked. Yeah. But Dear Love, A Beautiful Discord came out on Rise Records in August 2006. It's produced by Joey Sturgis, who produced the first few records of The Devil Wears Prada. And there's a very distinct sound to his production. And it kind of made me think about that Change Your Ways song that we played a few weeks ago when we were showcasing Bendigo. Just that ability to really overproduce this metalcore. It sounded incredible, but often it was hard to replicate live. But this is a pretty impressive first record for a band, you know, full of novelty. It's basically just a re-recording of their first demo. And yet full of novelty song titles, full of kind of real brutality, full of kind of novelty brutality. And it's probably a good time to play that breakdown from Dogs Can Grow Beards All Over right now. We've gone to town on keyboard, guys, but we keep coming back to it. The prevalence of synthesizers was so offensive at this time. Like, we <laughs> loved it and it made us get into it. But, oh, man, sometimes it was just absolutely shithouse. We kicked off the show with a, a little uh, a little tribute there to Jimmy Tony, one of Blank Expression's finest. But you can't forget one of the original members, Joel Peacock, man, the synth king from Bendigo. Like... I think, unfortunately, Devil Wears Prada came along a little bit late because these guys <laughs> these guys would have been a huge influence for Blank Expression, I reckon. Like, you know, this was a band that had stupidly novelty keyboards throughout. Bass, you know, it, that bass, bass slide is very oh, that's Jimmy, Jimmy Tony. Tony all over it, man. That's beautiful. But they're doing it well, man. Like, yes, yes, Dear Love, A Beautiful Discord is, is novelty in its nature, it's full of silliness. They're clearly having a lot of fun, this band, in like just kind of fucking with songs a bit. But I feel like it it, it works. I, I, I don't know if that's generally the vibe from the fans, but, man, I've, I fucking loved listening to this real early stuff from these guys. All the random piano, the synth stuff. Like, we, we talked about Chiotis, um several weeks back about a band that kind of fucked up doing this style like you know they just did not do this piano core synth core style music very well at all we we kind of really teed off on them in that episode go back and listen to it if you want but uh this early stuff from the devil wears prada really seems like these guys are just having the most fun with it man are we having fun yet and they really seem like they're just mucking around writing really heavy brutal metalcore songs but then chucking stupidly like that that one key synth in that breakdown that is hilarious man they could have done anything else in those gaps and there's just a like it it's great man it was it was so much fun uh listening to this early record i i had a, a lot of fun listening to it um probably probably just enjoyment wise the most fun album to listen to from these guys for me it's awesome that that fun came across because it was a purposeful decision to be a bit goofy with the song titles and things like that these guys were real young when they started this band mike haranica the vocalist was only 16 when this record was recorded and so he describes this era as kind of a little bit embarrassing and not in that way that other bands kind of write off their early stuff like this band played Dogs Can Grow Beards all over on their most recent tour. Like they're willing to pay the fan service, but they do acknowledge like, 
it was pretty immature, it was pretty silly. And particularly for Mike Hranica, it's because there's this intensity and this teen angst to the vocals that he doesn't really stand by today or particularly to the lyrics. He's like, I was so serious and so kind of like woeful. And then we kind of purposely had these silly song titles to offset that. So we weren't taking ourselves too seriously. So it's good that the fun came through because ultimately like this is a pretty serious record lyrically, you know, there's real faith elements to it being, you know, young Christians and that Christian metalcore scene being quite big at the time. So it is interesting that the fun comes through and it's really good that the fun comes through because he often talks about how he, these aren't his proudest works. But, you know, the next one that came along less than a year to the date of the previous record, which I absolutely love, is Plagues in 2007. Joey Sturgis is back with that signature production sound and there's absolute bangers on this record. HTML rules, dude. Hey, John, what's your name again? Reptar King of the Ozone. You got Craigery from Chiotis popping up. So we're getting another <laughs> mention here. He's on You Can't Spell Crap Without C. Craigery Owens, fucking hell, man. Just can't get away from him. You can't get away from the guy. But, man, you're, this this album, Plagues, uh, I said that, uh, you know, I said that the previous record, Dear Love, was probably the most fun to listen to. But for me, uh, you know, I, 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 I did as deep a dive as I could on these guys and listened to as much as I could. But I was just drawn time and time again to come back to Plagues. And it was probably a bit of a time and place thing, um, this sound, this style. To me, even though you mentioned Dear Love had that, that guy that kind of was known for being a bit, you know, over the top with his production uh, when he's putting together records, I feel like this is just a step up in the quality of production on Plagues. Like, it, it hasn't lost touch completely with the earlier work, but just a slightly more mature version of the band in the sense of these songs now really have a clear purpose. Like there's a very clear song writing structure now to these songs. Whereas on Dear Love, I think it was a bit more just like random assortments of bits chucked in. Let's have fun. Let's do silly weird bits. If, even if it works or it doesn't work. Whereas Plagues have really honed that in without completely losing touch of it. Like all the weird synth stuff's there. And I'm glad because I'm usually not into this stuff. Like, but I like it. I really like the kind of use of synth and keys throughout both these first two records. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised. A band that I just really didn't think was going to come to mind for me when listening to The Devil Wears Prada at all. But on Plagues, more probably the uh, music sensibilities of the band, but even some of the lyrical tones and elements, I was just getting some little under oath vibes at times, man, which really came as a bit of a surprise. But I want to just play a little bit of uh, hey John, what's your name again? Just to give the listener an idea of what I was sort of hearing from this maybe slight undergrowth influence and see if, see if you guys agree. Man, for me, that like transition out of the chorus with the cleans, that's got Aaron Gillespie written all over it. And then into that almost breakdown, staggered guitar riff with those different styles of scream, starting with the high one and then the real brutal low one, like that's Spencer Chamberlain all over it. I just, that little snippet, man, super under oath. I found there were bits of that kind of throughout this album, Plagues, that I guess that was what was really drawing me in. Like I'd heard these sounds before and I've really liked them. 
Um, so I, I reckon this for me is is the Devil Wears Prada at their best. Like this album plagues. It's pretty much uh, flawless. Like I, I fucking love it. I do really love this album. And this is the one that kind of sealed the deal. And that Under Oath point is interesting because whether they have listed Under Oath as an influence or not, I think it speaks to the ubiquity of Under Oath. They're only chasing safety came out in 2004 to find the great line in 2006. It would have been hard for those to not influence these bands. Like if you're in this scene, you're up and coming, you're a couple of years younger than those guys and you're putting out records in the same scene on the same labels. There's no way you wouldn't have been influenced. So whether you kind of knew it or not, Under Oath were planting seeds everywhere and it's a real testament to them. A really fucking great band uh, to be spoken about alongside another really great band. Like I do really, really enjoy The Devil Wears Prada and I think one of the cool things they did with this record was they re-released it with like cooler artwork. Like the first cover that came out was this very like broody girl on the front pointy type logo and then they re-released it with this really bright colorful very inviting record cover on this re-release and that's what actually kind of sucked me in a little bit it changed the way you thought about this band you went from being like brutal metal band to like oh a little bit brighter it's it's amazing the way color can kind of trick you like that oh man i'm so glad you mentioned the album cover because even just clicking it on spotify I just wanted to fucking click that album, man. As soon as they pop up and they're all listed over the years and I was like, oh, where do I start this week? It's just instantly drawn to Plague. So I didn't know that that was a re-released cover because that cover is one of the best album covers I've seen from the scene. I reckon it looks fucking sick. really plays into that more fluoro kind of color work that even you were saying early early fans, kind of that weird fluoro metal thing that was coming through that was odd. These guys playing into a bit of that. Uh, as well, which is which is really really cool, man. Pretty cool, pretty pretty cool. I really enjoyed listening to that album, especially Plagues. Like the stuff, all their stuff's cool. Pretty pretty cool. And they're very good at what they do. Um, but there's a lot of different eras to this band. Like they really do evolve uh, over the years. You gave me a bit of homework. Um, throughout the week, which I'm glad you did. We did a little bit differently this week, didn't we? You shared some video clips um, with me. That was just kind of a cool way for me to be able to like take basically one song from each of the albums over the years. And uh, I really enjoyed kind of the listening to the ones of these albums that we've talked about. This era of music videos for the band was very cliche and very scene typical. Like the Hey John, What's Your Name Again video, that kind of like playing in some dirty warehouse or something like that with like dust and dirt blowing around and just like thrashing and moshing in the middle of nowhere. HTML rules dude has that classic scene headbanging at the same time thing where like, you know, yeah. le legs are spread out and we're all in sync, but I absolutely love that. And one of the things that really stood out to me on this record is in Hey John, What's Your Name Again? And it's this little vocal flourish that Mike Haranica does. Like he does his little us at the end of words. <laughs> so there's this part in... Hey, John, where he's going, life, life, life. But the way he says it, he goes, life, life, life. And he just always has this little <laughs> flourish that has always been his signature move to me. And I love when that pops up throughout the rest of the discography. He's a brilliant singer. These guys are amazing musicians. I think this is a really impressive second record. And I do think it kind of encapsulates them well. They're not as super proud of it as you know, you'd want them to be, but they've also done that great thing again for the fans where they do still play songs off this record because they know people would want to hear them. I saw them a few years ago. I'd gone and got a haircut at a place near you 
where they notoriously give $10 haircuts and you're like, yeah, that's (laughs) going to be a great deal. But no matter what you are, it's this very particular haircut, like fade that just does not suit every type of person. And so I went and got (laughs) this. I I know the hairdresser you were talking about and I refuse to walk in there because I don't, I don't let hairdressers bring like razors anywhere near my head. It's scissors or nothing. And I know in there it's razor only basically. And I'm going to walk out with a real fresh, clean fade, which is so not me, man. I'd gone and got this awful fade. I was going to see the Devil Wears Prada on my own. And this was kind of a new thing for me to go see bands on my own because I'm still into the scene. My friends aren't necessarily. I'm just going to go enjoy the night. And I went and saw the Devil Wears Prada and they played these bangers and it was so good. But you could tell there was a real frustration to Mike Aranica about those songs because then there was one of their new songs and he jumps off stage and he's singing in the crowd. No one really knows the words and he's kind of pissed off and he hands me the mic. And I'm like, this is my Mark Wahlberg rock star moment. If this was any (laughs) other song, but he's handed me the mic during one of their new songs that I don't know the word to. And he walks off to the bar to get a beer. And I'm standing in the middle of the mosh pit with Mike (laughs) Haranica's mic just being like, I don't know the words. And I try to like hand the mic to people and they're like backing up. be like, Ugh, no, no. So no I'm just one, no, we don't know the words, man. So I just walk up to the front of the stage and just place the mic. Like oh, I hand it to the security <laughs> guard. That's right. I'm just like, yeah, um, I think the singer's at the bar. And it was just the most fucking awkward And the thing. band was still like playing yeah, the song. The band was still fully bit. playing and I'm just awkwardly holding his microphone. But um, yeah, it's, I love these songs. I wish they loved them as much as I do, but good on them for still playing them. Yeah, man. I, I just can't believe how young um, Mike was at the time of doing these because probably the, the standout uh, noticeable thing that I enjoyed the most on these early records was just the diverse range of Mike's screams across both these two first records. Like his ability to hit anything from your stock standard, stand and deliver kind of metal scream to growls to that pig squeal to like... Man, it is yeah, Bree. Like it is just fucking insane that a guy sixteen and then seventeen years old was able to do that. Obviously, he got some help on records. I don't know how well he was able to do it live at the time, but either way, still very, very impressive. Uh, a guy that we didn't really mention from the crew with Dangers and those other boys that was into this band is our good friend Greblo. So I think let's hear from Greblo now with this week's Shimfer. Boys, I'm coming in, Chef Greb, with a food analogy. Been a while, but uh, the devil wears Prada. Uh, $10 worth of chips with $4 extra chicken salt, right? You know, like, oh, back in the day with mates? Hello, take me back some of my fondest memories. But now, alone, oh, a little bit too silly, right? A little bit too mad dog, you know? You can't have that in the workplace, right? Like, the Bree screams are the extra chicken salt. Are you with me? You know, like Emua, Misery Signals. Those bands, just regular chips with chicken salt. Have them any day of the week. You know, not afraid to show your family. But the extra chicken salt, the Bree screams, oh, you know, like you sit down to eat it by yourself and your mate's dad comes along. You're like, nah, they, they, they fucked my order. This isn't me. I didn't want this. But if your son was here, he'd bloody love it. But, uh, yeah, you know, that's just, it, it's a little bit too much going on. Still good, just... You can't have it every day of the week. However, also, I know we're just talking about the band, but I'll never miss an opportunity to say, Stanley Tucci, dead set legend, right? Skinny Nick, he knows how to pimp a sauce. 
Amazing insights from Greblo as always, but I'm lost on the Stanley <laughs> Tucci reference. Is that something I'm missing out on here? Little bit, yeah, yeah. St- Stanley Tucci does these really um, just wholesome little cooking videos that pop up uh, either on his uh, YouTube or Instagram. They pop up on TikTok. Ez loves him, um, and I love cooking, so it kind of like brings the two together. But yeah, he's just got these nice old worldly kind of Italian recipes that he digs into and he just man he's got this lovely big kitchen and old kind of utensils and stuff and yeah he's he's just so wholesome to watch his voice is beautiful like he's such a lovely man and he's in the movie the devil wears prada i've just realized oh, that's the, the connection there we go, yeah man. there oh, we go that's the link i didn't even think i thought Gribbler just wants to talk about cooking which i'm always <laughs> up for <laughs> oh, but no man. that's the link there you yeah go. fantastic uh, but yeah, no, I, I quite I I agree with the analogy to a point. Like I think the um that kind of silliness that they bring on the earlier albums, that real pig squeal, breeze scream, that is the extra chicken salt. But I fucking love chicken salt. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so I want that stuff. Give me that on every album. Give me that Devil Wears Prada for days. I know it doesn't stick around, but that's that's really the stuff I like. So chicken salt to stay for me forever. Kukukacha! The band came out with their next record with Roots Above and Branches Below in 2009. This was on Ferret Records this time, whereas the previous records had been on Rise. And Joey Sturgis, again, is at the helm of production on this record. There are just absolute bangers on this. You know, we so often talk about Magnor songs, and I think Dogs Can Grow Beards All Over was a Magnor song. But for me, this is a record that is 2009, driving around in Paul's red Pintara. I didn't have a great car, but like Andy with the Magnora, I had a decent sound system, nice little CD changer, good speakers up the back, and I'd be pumping something like this. I know a I don't love many things that are this heavy. I don't love all metal or metalcore. There is definitely a line somewhere that I haven't quite figured out why it's there. But God damn, this stuff makes me feel good. Like I've <laughs> I've criticized metalcore or I've spoken about how like some people lean on metalcore for mental health back in our Amity Affliction episode. This stuff genuinely does make me feel good. There is some kind of like physical animal instinct in me that when I hear this stuff, I just want to move and it's very cathartic. So whether people like metal or not, it's always important to remember that like, you know, people tap into music for different reasons. And this makes me feel so good. Man, I think our brains are a little too like closely aligned sometimes. I can't believe the fact that you mentioned the Amity Affliction then, because I just had a little point written right next to my notes for this exact song, Danger, Wild Man. This is how you fucking do this style of music. Those cool bouncy guitars in that intro is what the Amity Affliction were going for. Even Mike's screams are a little bit similar to what the Amity Affliction were going for. But they just do it 10 times better, man. Like, this song is fucking sick. And then to go from that, to go from that real heavy, bouncy fucking guitars, Mike just screaming down the barrel. And then you've got that almost, like, orchestral guitar riff that comes through the verses that then the synth copies later on in the song it's fucking cool man like it's it's as as i kind of mentioned in plagues this is a band that is constantly evolving really really working on their craft finding ways to put together 
well-constructed songs that have a purpose and songs like this are uh, uh, some of the coolest pretty, pretty cool. stuff they've written uh, some of the heaviest stuff they've written like they're not definitely haven't stepped away from like the brutality of the band yet that might come later but man these this this album's sick i really enjoyed listening to it my only slight not struggle with it but i guess the fun is starting to go now isn't it like this is this is far more mature this is a far more kind of serious uh album in its nature and in its sound a lot of that ridiculous uh like pig squealing vocals synth all that stuff sort of gone now uh, mike's just a little bit more kind of stand and deliver classic metalcore screams um he's not doing as many vocal acrobats anymore which i must admit i'm a little bit uh uh, you know, feeling a little bit bad that those things are gone because I really enjoyed just his ability to kind of hit any fucking scream there is. Uh, but on this one, they're keeping it a little bit more together. They're keeping it a little tighter. It was a joy to listen to. I assume this might be one of the fans' kind of favourite albums. Would I be right in saying that? It seems like this could be one of the fan favourites. As somebody who's been a fan of theirs for quite a long time, this is certainly my favorite of theirs and it's the one that I connect with the most, but that might just be a time and place thing for the fan base. Like, I'm sure the Devil Wears Prada are attracting new fans these days because they have stuck it out and they've got great longevity. But I also think there's probably a bunch of mid-30s dudes like me still listening to them. So therefore, you've got this attachment to the thing you heard, you know, when you just started being an adult, you had your own car and you were driving around like that. So there are a lot of really great virtues to this record, but it's funny you noticed the vocal changes because Mike has even been criticized by some fans for like, you know, not being as good on this record. But ultimately what actually happened was he learned how to use his voice properly. He was very chaotic. He was just screaming and hurting his vocals a lot in the early days. So while people might love that kind of brutal raw sound, it wasn't sustainable and we wouldn't have the band around today if he was still screaming like that. But it is really interesting that you noticed that change. It was purposeful, but certainly something that the fans had a bit to say about then. And it still comes up from time to time now. I was mentioning on Plagues how I was sort of picking up this, uh, this almost under oath sound that was coming through on some of the music that I wasn't expecting. But uh, on this album, there's another band that, that came to mind. And I think it's showcased best on the intro to a song that, I didn't mention, I was talking about sillier song titles earlier, but man, how good is the song title assistant to the regional manager? There was a period for the band where their intro song was actually the intro theme of the American office. So yeah, these guys are willing to have a good time. Oh man, I, I love that. I, I just want to play a, just, just the intro of that song because I'm going to play it before I mention the band and then we'll see if you agree with me that this is kind of just very much a band that we know and love. So let's just hear the intro to Assistant to the Regional Manager. Man, do you even want to have a guess of who I'm here and there? Are you here in Parkway Drive there? <laughs> You fucking bet I am, man. That is Parkway as hell. Like, that is that real kind of atmospheric guitar that's ringing true. And then that brutal kind of breakdown with the double kick and the heaviness and the scream straight through the ears. Like, 
that's fucking Parkway as anything like it's not like throughout the entire album it's just scattered in bits and it's probably more in the music than anything else definitely definitely and again I think it's testament to these guys tapping into the sounds that were around them because metalcore can sound very samey and so often you might hear something like that sounds exactly like this riff or whatever in that instance it's like that sounds like a Parkway Drive intro not they've ripped off a Parkway Drive song. They've been influenced by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely not ripped off. Like, it's still its own unique thing, which I love. It's just a little a little homage, a little kind of like, hey, this is, this is the stuff we can write and play as well. It's not a rip-off. It's just like, we like that stuff too, and here's a little version of kind of how we would write that music. And, and I, I like that they weren't afraid to kind of like, you know, move around with their style a bit. These guys are clearly constantly evolving and trying different things and they're not just a one-trick pony that's for sure something i love is the ability to change it up on this record like we love that violence and sunshine throughout different records where you get heavy and you get light this is a pretty heavy band but on this record they do show their softer side a little bit there's a great track on here called louder than thunder which doesn't feature any screamed vocals at all i'm just going to play a little bit of that now I always loved that song. It stuck with me the first time I listened to the record. It, it stood out to me straight away. It's one that I'll jump straight to sometimes. Like I do often listen to this record in full, but sometimes I'll just go and listen to that track. I really love it. Man, we have really kind of given a lot of airtime already to Mike, and that's cool that we have, but we, we have skipped over the other key vocalist in the band. Is it is it Jeremy, the clean singer, man? I, he is such a Paul guy. Like, man, this guy is has just continued to improve his clean vocals across all the albums. Like, that there, to have now a song that is just him on the entire uh, song, there's no mic, it's all stripped back, it's that cool... But version where metal bands were able to basically give a ballad but also this this kind of electro pop ballad was very common hey like it's not it's not like when we went back and we did from autumn to ashes and there were kind of these acoustic kind of ballads this stuff's not acoustic ballads this stuff's this weird electro pop moody ballads and jeremy's voice is perfect on this song it clearly shows maybe a bit of a direction on where these guys were headed. Well, I've mentioned it a couple of times and the Joey Sturgis production definitely plays a part in this because as beautiful as Jeremy's vocals are, they weren't something he was able to pull off live super well. Live clips from this era, he's doing a good job. There's a lot of reverb and a lot of echo and the live clips from the modern era, he can barely reach those notes. And it has a bit to do with Joey Sturgis and his reputation for kind of overproduction and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing it's just every sound is replaced everything is perfect like I watched this little in-studio documentary with the Devil Wears Prada and the guitarist is listening back to something Joey's playing him and he's like oh yeah but it needs to be like this and Joey's kind of like what do you mean and the guitarist is like well that's not how I played it so even like his own guitar parts have been sliced up and rearranged into a different riff and I think it wasn't an overreach. It's what the band signed up for. And it's what the band wanted. And it's what the band benefited from. But Joey Sturgis has this kind of discography, including like Asking Alexandra, Miss May I, We Came As Romans, Of Mice and Men, Attack Attack, Bless the Fall, that all have this quite signature, heavily produced sound, which I think now 10 years, 12, 14 years on, 
it's starting to show that it was a very time and place thing, but it's a little bit much. Another thing that comes to mind with this record is the Guitar Hero connection, because this was right at the time we were hanging out a lot, you know, in our uni days, and we were playing a lot of Guitar Hero. And Des Moines, or Des Moines, I don't know which one it is. If yeah, I don't quite know how to say it either. Because there's, you know, Des Moines is the place, but then it's got a Z, so it's probably Des Moines. They're, they're funny guys. We're not in on the in jokes. <laughs> um, but Des Moines or Des Moines was on Guitar Hero, and we used to play this all the time. It was such a banger. This might ring a bell to some of the listeners too. Absolute bangers. I love this record. I really love this period of the band. And though I have stuck with them, this is the one that I do really love the most. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Guitar Hero there, man, because uh, I, I remember, you know, slaying away on the on the plastic guitars and playing that one. And it just made me think back this week. And I was just like, hang on, I, I'm pretty sure Guitar Hero and Rock Band uh, were really, really good at showcasing bands from this scene so i just did a little dive this week i just did a little bit of research and i just wanted to kind of rattle off rapid fire some of the bands that are featured on guitar hero or rock band that for uh fans of this scene i was just really impressed at how long this list is because all these bands are featured and we've covered a lot of these on the pod but basically this is what i came up with you've got afi all that remains amberlin at the drive-in atreyu bringers bullet for my valentine Coheed, Dashboard, Every Time I Die, The Fall of Troyer on there, man, Fallout Boy, Kill Switch, My Chemical Romance, Of Mice and Men, Panic at the Disco, and Paramore. All these bands are featured on either Guitar Hero or Rock Band. And I think that's a really, really, really cool, pretty, pretty cool. thing that this video game or these video game franchises separately were able to do. They were able to obviously reach out to these record labels. They were able to get these bands on board. And instead of it just being stock standard metal shit or classic rock songs from the 70s which is what we all thought the guitar hero and rock band were only going to be that shit there is a very detailed list of some of the stuff from the scene we knew and loved that was featured on these video games man it was so fucking cool to play these that's fantastic and i hadn't really thought about the value of that you remember like every time i die is the new black was on the first guitar hero you got that's what really planted the seed i guess this was kind of like our tony hawk like obviously tony hawk wasn't a music game guitar hero was but the generation before us or you know those people that were just a little bit older than us hearing all that punk rock on tony hawk that they connected with we then got to connect with our music through video games as well and it kind of broadened the audience it meant that you know t-bone who's not into metal can be playing a devil wears prada or an ambulance song or a paramour song and those little seeds get planted in their minds as well and it made what we were into way more normal and way more accepted like i am really grateful that we never really had outsider culture in what we were listening to. It was never necessarily the mainstream, but we didn't have to feel bad about being emos or being screamo kids or whatever we wanted to describe ourselves as. I think we got enough popular culture behind us to feel good about this stuff. I think that it was also just a bit of time and place thing because like <laughs> I went to like, well, we both did for a while, but a relatively conservative Catholic high school. And I look at back at some of the photos and, long sweeping hair, bandanas, eyebrow rings, sweatbands. And we were just fitting in with the same footy and netty kids. Like 
it was a very accepting scene at the time like it wasn't kind of seen as like oh because you were emo kids you're the outcast whereas you talk about that kind of you know half generation before us that like that punk scene or that new metal scene they were kind of the nerdy outsider kids weren't they like that's how they were kind of treated that that's where they were kind of seen in their broader kind of like schooling groups whereas that wasn't so much the case with emo kids like if you think back man some of those like netty girls those like popular girls they were fucking as much as into this stuff as anyone else like these these girls would come down to melbourne and go to these emo showcase shows with us like it yeah. was a very they'd put on their black scene. jeans like they'd go and buy like an outfit for the, the, the punk outfit. show yeah <laughs> the outfit would be would be there the hair would be extra like flared up for the night the makeup would be extra yeah, they'd be straight uh, back it, to netball the next day <laughs> yeah straight back to netball which was sick man well i had a pretty hard time for a few years at school with bullying and things like that and it was entering this scene that stopped that you know like once i had my own identity and my own interests and i was playing in a band you know, things that could be an easy target for some people quickly switch to like, oh shit, that guy has interests and hobbies and he has an identity and he has a collective of people that he can meet up and go to shows with. So I feel for any kid today who maybe doesn't have the opportunity to connect with any kind of group. Like I see it with kids at school that I teach. I love that 12 year olds have got like a Dungeons and Dragons club. No one should be picking on them. 10, 15 years ago, you could be an adult and someone's calling you a nerd for that. Now, this kid has friends. Like the, the kid who's picking on the Dungeons and Dragons kid, he doesn't have friends. He's not yeah. having fun. <laughs> Fuck off. So it was really, I think we're fortunate to stand on the shoulders of some of those people that did the work before us, like those new metal kids and, you know, the gutter punks and stuff like that. I think they laid a foundation for us. But to have a community and to have a connection, we were really, really lucky. Oh, we certainly were, man. And and growing up in a town like Bendigo, it shouldn't have worked. Like, a, you know, a town like Bendigo is usually pretty shit at supporting anyone that's a little bit different. But for whatever reason, we were lucky enough that that time and at that place, we were well supported. And, and yeah, it kind of just, as you said, it gave us a little sense of community um, that we were looking for. Mad love to Bendigo. They were great days. We've got to go to Bendigo to get me Green Cube. Well, let's, uh, let's f flip the switch on this episode, man. You up for a game? Let's do it. What will you ask me? Who should we look to? If all we know is asking questions. Don't quiz at me like I'm a stranger. Turn your thoughts. Yeah, did you reach out to Joey for that one? <laughs> <laughs> sure did. It's a great example there of how hard it is to sing those songs <laughs> and even with auto-tune, how shit they still sound. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I I'm not sure if, if Joey was ever putting together those songs in half an hour, but um, it's, a very, it's still a very good effort, man, and another fucking banger to put away these these quiz 
these quiz anthems. I'm bloody loving them. Just wait till the record comes out. Well, man, we're talking about The Devil Wears Prada, and I think it's a miss if we don't mention, and we already have mentioned with Stanley, but the movie The Devil Wears Prada came from the book. These things often get mixed up in Google searches and whatever. So I thought, let's kind of mash. She's mashing it. She does that. The two together. And this week's quiz, we're going to really be talking about movies that encompass bands or music as their main theme. Are you up for this one, man? I'm up for it, man. This sounds excellent. Let's kick things off. This one's going to be an audio-based question. Question. (laughs) This one's going to be an audio-based question with some options. We're going all the way back to 8 Mile for this one, man. And basically, I'm going to ask you to finish the lyric from this My rap battle. Are sweaty. So I'm going to play. <laughs> I'm going to play for you some of the rap battle now, and then you're going to finish it off for us. Lord, I think you were a little hard on the Beaver. So was Eddie Haskell, Wally, and Miss Cleaver. This guy keeps screaming. He's paranoid. Quick, someone get his ass another steroid. Can you finish that? lyric i will give you some options does he say is that a tank top or a new bra somebody give this guy the keys to my sports car or blah buddy boo blah blah biddy boo blah um i want to think that this is a really easy option but you've thrown me off with that last one i was just like that could be there but i i feel like the tank sports bra line that's ringing a bell for me so i'm gonna lock that one in all right let's listen through and see. This guy keeps screaming. He's paranoid. Quick, someone get his ass another steroid. It is the blah one. Oh, uh, he's Lyrical really hitting genius him right he, there. Is that hurt. Craig Owens? That is Craigery. Yeah, that's that's some original Craigery shit right there. Unfortunately, you didn't get that one, but um, fucking who would have? Who would have? Oh my god. I'm feeling you might uh, might be a little more in touch with this next question because this uh, this question has a bit of a personal note for you uh, and we might uh, go on a little little chat about that. But question two is, what number do the amps go up to in the This Is Spinal Tap? They go up to 11 because it's louder than 10, obviously. <laughs> It's 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 one louder. It's <laughs> one unit one unit louder. Yeah, yeah. They definitely do go up to eleven. I fucking love that scene. It's hilarious. That whole bit with him showcasing all his guitars and the documentary guy. He just wants to fucking know what they sound like. Instead, he just picks them up and just <laughs> imagine what this sounds like. <laughs> it's such an incredible movie. Like this podcast is about like foundational music, but that is a foundational film. Like that's that's when comedy blows your mind. It's the kind of moments like the UK office. Sergio Giorgini. Or super bad. I'm getting that for show. Where you're like, they break through this threshold for you in your mind and you start to see other possibilities. Like this was satire at its finest. I think this was probably the first mockumentary I ever saw. And it's just incredible. And the the crew behind those and Christopher Guest and Co. with you know a mighty wind best in show waiting for Guffman. These are just like God tier films and fuck. I love this as spinal tap. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. So we will move on, but you got that one, right? So well done. Uh, question three, most recently Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper starred in the movie, a star is born, but do you know, Paul, how many A Star Is Born films there have been all up? Like the same film remade? It's the same film. They've got all the same title 
and generally the same premise in storyline. Very similar. I think there's three of them, right? Man, I was the same as you. I was adamant it was three, but there's actually four. And I couldn't believe there's four. However, the first one, man, comes from 1937. Damn. That's a fucking old movie. So, yeah, 37 with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. Then 54 with Judy Garland and James Mason. So I think that's where you and I kind of like, oh, we know that sort of period onwards. Because then 76 is Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And then 2018 with Cooper and Gaga. So, yeah, kind of a, a crazy like almost 20 to 30 year gaps between these movies. And I just wonder if already the franchise is thinking like 2040, you know, who are going to, who's going to be the Gaga and Cooper then? Like, it's going to be so fucking weird. They're sussing out toddlers that can <laughs> sing right now and just being like, who's going to star in the next one? It'll be Harry Styles and a Beyonce <laughs> yeah. and Jay-Z kid. There's my prediction. That, that, that could be it, man. That could be the prediction. I can't wait for <laughs> A Star is Born 5. Fuck yeah. It's like, it's my favorite Fast and the Furious movie. That's for sure. <laughs> have you, have you seen the Gaga and Cooper movie? Nah, I heard that song Shallow way too much. I was working at a liquor store at the time that played the radio and like in Vancouver, there's some elements of Canada that are incredibly progressive, but I found that they played the radio there like it was still 2002. And so I just heard shallow way too much. And that part literally goes, I'm like, I'm out dog. This is a no from me. So no, I refuse, man. I refuse. Unfortunate because it is a very, very good movie. I fucking loved it when I saw it. Yeah. I, I still rank it as one of the, one of the better movies I've seen in the last few years. Really good. You and I are not friends anymore. <laughs> we uh, never were. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's uh, tell them. <laughs> uh, we'll move on, man. Uh, this uh, question is from Walk the Line, which obviously follows uh, Johnny Cash's early life and his romance with June Carter. He's a cent in the country music scene. So I put to you, Paul, who plays Johnny Cash in this movie? Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix is correct. Well done, sir. And a little bonus point question. Who plays June Carter? Do you remember? I can't remember. It was either Reese with a spoon or Reese without a spoon. It was one or the other. It is the with. It uh, does have a spoon uh, in this featuring movie. Featuring spoon. She carries it around in every scene. Uh, but yeah, well done, man. Bonus point. I'm uh, putting my fingers up. You're up to like three now or something. Well done. Uh, all right. Question five, my friend. This is a true or false question. And the question is, Jamie Foxx actually sings and plays the piano for almost all the songs throughout the movie Ray. Now, do you think that is true or do you think that is in fact actually false? I think that is true. I think Jamie Foxx can absolutely sing. I'm a little bit unsure about the play, but I reckon he, if he didn't know how to play already, he learnt for the movie. Um, so I'm going to go with yes, he played and sung pretty much everything. You have given the guy big raps for something that he didn't do. What? So the guy can sing very good pipes and he can play piano quite well. But for the movie, they definitely stuck with it being Ray Charles' voice. So this is like Ray Charles' studio sessions and concert recordings that were mainly used. And when they kind of asked Taylor, who's the director who worked on this movie, he actually like worked with Ray Charles for 15 years to bring this story together. And his very simple quote about the matter was basically, well, I had to have Ray Charles singing, these are masterpieces. So basically didn't want to fuck with having a uh, an imitation or a version of his voice. Uh, definitely, I believe, like 
uh, Jamie Foxx. I'm going to give you half a point because he, he definitely learnt piano and learnt to sing better. So his lip syncing was on point. And when they're cutting to scenes of him playing piano, it's actually him kind of hitting the right notes and shit. So he is doing the stuff throughout the movie properly, but then it's overdubbed with Ray Charles' actual voice uh, for those kind of like key songs throughout. So That's pretty uh, wild. Yeah. Yeah, pretty wild. I was the same as you, man. I was adamant that it was Jamie Foxx doing all of it throughout, and that because I think he won the Oscar or something for this, I, or or was nominated at least. But um, yeah, to to a degree, he did some of the stuff, but for the m- most part of what we were listening, it's all Ray Charles. All right, man. Uh, question six. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, I think we all have. But in the movie, almost famous. Yeah, have you seen it? Have you seen the movie? Yes, I have. Great yes. Movie. I reckon you will know this without any uh, kind of options here. So let's just see if you know this one straight off the bat. In the movie, why did Jeff and the other band members hate the saltwater t-shirt design so much? Oh, damn. See, you've bigged me up there. So like, I reckon you'll know this one. I got no idea. I haven't seen this movie since it was part of like a seven weeklies for $7 rental. Oh, I've got to watch yeah, this man, one again. It. Seven weeklies for seven bucks. This is the old days. I got no idea. Why didn't they like the t-shirt design? It was like those very first Blank Expression shirts where when you washed it, it started to peel off. Was it that? <laughs> yeah, that, and they shrunk down to like an extra, extra, extra small. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, You're so close, man, because it is about the design that's on the T-shirt. This might ring a bell, but basically the picture is that Russell is the only member that's in focus and the three other oh, members in the band yeah. are faded and blurred out in the background. And Russell's just like, but I'm the fucking lead man. Get behind it. And everyone else is like, fuck you, dude. You suck. (laughs) Much like the promo shots for this show. Like I'm right front and center in focus. And then you're up the background. No one knows who I am. That's the the way it should be. It's the Savage Garden model. Like you're up the back (laughs) doing all the work, but I'm the front man. You're Russell and I'm, uh, my name is Earl. That's me. Uh, (laughs) Just hanging out in the background. Fucking hell. Uh, Man. All right. Couple couple to go. I'm, uh, I'm going back to an audio based question here. And one that should ring very true to you. But we're going to the movie School of Rock, and I'm going to ask you to finish this quote. But anyway, I just decided to give up on myself and become a teacher because those that can't do, teach. And those that can't teach... Can you finish that line, Paul? Uh, I use this one all the time. And those that can't teach, teach PE. Yes, the Australian version of... And those that can't teach... Teach gym. That is correct. (laughs) I fucking always love that line. Just sitting around the table in the staff room, just gagging with the the other teachers, you guys. It's so good. All right, we're going to round this out. Last question in this quiz. Uh, The movie Straight Outta Compton tells the story of the rise and fall of the gangster rap group NWA and its members. Can you name the five members of NWA who feature in this movie. How many can you name? A point for all. We've done this before and I didn't know it. So I'm going to go Easy e Dr. Yes. Dre. Yes. Uh, MC Ren. Yes. Um, fuck. Another big one. Oh, Cube. Ice Cube. Cube, yeah. Um, and God, I can't remember... I went, oh, fuck, I've got four out of the five. No, man, that's very good. That is four points. It's just just the DJ missing. DJ Yeller. Ah, shit. uh, Yeah, DJ Yeller. The the fifth one. And me not really being as much into this scene, uh, I learned a little something. 
that's a that's a great work man four out of out five is very impressive but uh there's obviously you know arabian prince is an original member of nwa and is not in the movie though is not is not mentioned at all and i just have a little quote from the man himself as to his reasons why he thought he was left out and basically it evolves around that he had to sue ruthless records later on after easy e's death uh, and basically uh tomica uh i don't know tamisha i don't know how to say her name easy's wife she owned that label so he believes there was just kind of some conflict of interest issues between him basically suing uh the label that she now owned and the movie being all evolved around that and it was just probably going to be far too tricky to have him featured in the film while his real version self is suing the <laughs> fucking record label so but he's just like it was a great film i really like it i've seen it twice i just was never bitter about it i'm just not fucking in it so oh mad uh, love to arabian quite, prince yeah, then. yeah 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 a nice sweet note from the man but man you did very well four extra points there at the end definitely tips you well over the 50 percent pass mark for this pod i don't know how many actually got but that is the end of the quiz well done sir it's a lot of pressure being on the other side of the quiz i do enjoy running them more than i do enjoy being <laughs> quiz. so great yeah, quiz. You don't getting... sweat as much when oh, you're running them that's for it's sure so much pressure like where do i look what do i do with my hands am i breathing weird <laughs> <laughs> what do i do with my hands that's what i was like the first time i had to kiss a girl oh what do i do with my hands <laughs> i didn't have do, to do kiss I... her i wanted to kiss her <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna kiss me nick or else <laughs> Uh, that was a fantastic quiz thank you very very much so obviously we've covered the scene years of the devil wears prada but they're very much still an active band and they're one that i've stuck with you know to an extent i'm not as kind of enveloped by their later works as i was by their early works but they do keep giving plenty of reasons to keep listening for their existing fans and i'm sure new ones but they did this zombie ep in 2010 And it was kind of a little side passion project, but it ultimately planted the seed for the direction of their sound. This zombie EP was really fast. It was really aggressive. They experimented. They had like, you know, movie little sound bites and spoken word parts. And they bailed on the dumb song titles as well. So this was kind of like the steering in the direction of being a bit more serious, taking themselves more seriously and doing what they wanted to do. And it really led to the sound shift on Dead Throne, their 2011 record. This one on Ferret Records and Roadrunner Records, so you can see they're steering more into that metal side of things. They've broken away from Joey Sturgis on this record, and they've got Adam D from Killswitch. And, you know, that's someone we absolutely love. So they're really leaning into this metal side because he's got those sensibilities. You can't get much of a better name for metalcore than Adam D from Killswitch. So I love the way Jeremy's clean vocals sound on this record. They're a little bit more authentic. I wouldn't say raw. They're still quite produced, but they're a little bit more in his wheelhouse of what he's actually able to sing. They really kick the shackles off on Dead Throne and they let loose with Adam D producing, really bringing out their best rather than creating something out of nothing, which was a bit of the vibe with the Joey Sturgis stuff. So I'm going to play my favorite song from Dead Throne. This is Born to Lose. So 
So you can definitely hear that more kind of like aggressive, manic kind of side of the Devil Wears Prada. We've heard them be heavy before, but there's a real kind of haste to this record. And I really quite loved that. It's not the same as the earlier stuff, but it's a great step in a different direction. We're getting serious now, man. Like this stuff's getting, this stuff's getting serious. We've got to take these guys more seriously. The music is clearly more mature and uh, they're more metal now just than anything else. And I guess that's where we'll see how we'll see how well I can kind of hold on to this band as we go through these these newer albums because Dead Throne I'm still interested and liking it but I'm starting to, my grip's loosening a little that's totally reasonable because they have steered away from what was their signature sound to this much more dark side of things and they continued on with that with 818 in September 2013 but this record was produced by Matt Goldman who is the genius behind Under Oath's Define the Great Line Disambiguation Lost in the Sound of Separation so you know a little tie into that point you made earlier and also Adam D as well so kind of combination of old and new there I really like the sound of this album but to me it's a stepping stone I don't attach myself to any of the songs in particular it's not one that i often go back to but certainly an important transition in their sound i'm starting to kind of struggle a little more as we go through this album you sent me the song mammoth and sailor's prayer uh i just kind of found them like musically uh, uh on mammoth uh, it is more leaning into that newer kind of uh that parkway that real metal sound uh that that these bands were going you know you've got good metal fests continuing all over europe and stuff so i think that makes sense why if bands want to continue to survive in the scene they made that kind of shift to being a little more stock standard straight up metal because metal is still very well supported whereas that metal core hardcore scene is definitely drifting away especially by this kind of time after 818 came space ep in 2015 and again it's really interesting the way that ep's directed this band's sound like almost these just little side notes that they were doing and they're like oh fuck this is what we want to sound like this is what we want to do and this record featured a brand new guitarist and i do think the devil wears prada are a band who have benefited from member changes the last record their former keyboardist was out and they got in a new keyboardist jonathan gehring on this record their guitarist and principal songwriter chris ruby has left the band and now they've got their guitar tech, Kyle Cypress, which can be a big, big change for a band. Like that is the core of your sound. A guy who has been your main songwriter for five records, gone, and you've now got the guy who was teching for him. And it's he slid in so well. This is his first work and the real start of something new and special for the Devil Wears Prada. I don't know how you feel about you know where they went from this point onwards, but as a fan of theirs, it was very much in hindsight, a necessary change for them. This Space EP, again, kind of showcased a different side of the band, different sonic elements. And I'm just going to play a little bit of Planet A right now to demonstrate kind of, again, where they had gone. Jonathan Gehring really brought something special to the band with his contribution on keys. I think he's a different kind of keys player to their original player, a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more writing conscious. In that song, you can hear kind of different soundscapes, a bit of that receiving end of sirens, spaciness, given that it's the space EP. So I really liked that change in direction. How did you feel about that one? I don't know. 
I'm, I'm going to kind of get to it as we continue on, but I find it hard when bands really start to step away from kind of their origins. And I reckon I have a tough... This, this is basically where I stand. And I get why bands have to do it, because they've built such a legion of fans. But I almost would prefer a band to stop and say, basically, that's our time as the Devil Wears Prada done. But especially it would have been a good timing with kind of member changes and stuff. But three of the five members now have a new band and we are called this and this is what we're doing. I get why that would be a dumb business decision to make because basically you have to try and like get fans from the start. But I find that this Space EP is really the beginning of the end of what the Dev Wears Prada started as and are now basically starting to become more of like a uh, heavy power rock band more than anything else so yeah i've got some more thoughts as we kind of go into even more of the newer shit but yeah i'm just i'm just not seeing how this is really the same band anymore that's an interesting point though because do you think like think about bring me the horizon think about how different they are from their start to where they are now i think that point's probably relevant when you like it see i disagree with that because i like the devil wears pride to be like be stupid to break up lose that kind of brand awareness lose that income to start something new and take a risk because i like it i'm like yeah makes sense natural progression but for you as someone who's a bit of an outsider to the band and doesn't have an attachment you just hear two pretty distinct eras and go that probably should be two different bands. So I wonder if that would be the case if this resonated with you. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Bringers because they're very clearly written on my uh, dot points for this kind of uh, part of this conversation because I really feel, and I'm not super attached to the scene, uh, don't, you know, haven't stuck with as many bands, but for me, outside of Bring Me The Horizon is where I kind of then go, I can't think of any other bands that have done uh, this as well as they have. We did a big episode on them. People can go back and listen. I think they are an amazing band who have constantly evolved and changed and continued to bring in new fans, being bigger than ever before in the scene. I don't know how big the Devil Wears Prada are in the scene. They're potentially still quite a big band. I'm not sure. But I feel like Bringers did it so well. And I guess you're right. There's definitely a huge bias there because I love that band and stayed with them through the whole journey. Whereas I don't really know this band. So you're right. All I'm really hearing is within a week of listening to a band as opposed to a 10, 15 year period in one week, I'm kind of making a decision on like, hmm, you guys are really starting to step away now from your earlier shit, guys. What the fuck? What happened to you, man? Used to be cool. I'm still cool. Nah, you've changed, man. But over a 15 year career, it's not as shocking. I guess you, as a fan yourself, you kind of were along for that journey and seeing it slowly evolve into what they have now sort of becoming more of this power rock band, this real atmospheric rock band that is very different. But yeah, it's, it's very hard to kind of separate the two, you as a fan and me as a new listener. I see your point though, because it is even a bit of an unfair comparison because Bring Me The Horizon are tastemakers. They're ahead of the curve. They're doing things before others that then set the tone. I think the Devil Wears Prada were just literally surviving. I think they have had to change and adapt because they want to, but also because bands from this scene do not exist anymore. And maybe these guys have some staying power as well because they were a few years later. Like we talk a lot about 2002, three and four, their first record was 2006. So, you know, maybe that helped them as well. They got to see some of the mistakes that were made or they didn't get wrapped up in that kind of early emo buy up all the bands on the record labels. But yeah, I think even in a way, while I think 
obviously because I like them, I see the progression. It's also not the best comparison because bringers are fucking amazing and ahead of the curve. But they did continue to evolve their sound. What I liked about from Space EP onwards is they hired Dan Corniff to produce. And again, unlike Joey Sturgis, he's pushing them to bring out what they've got rather than overproducing, you know, polishing a turd, if you will. So Transit Blues comes out in October 2016. And this is probably the record that resonated with me the least, but I do really respect the work that they did. Again, Jeremy's voice actually sounds like him. He can actually sing the songs live. It was mentioned at the top of the episode, but Daniel Williams, the drummer, who's an incredible metalcore drummer, you know, he's got that kind of like Justin Foley from Killswitch vibe where like they're doing the most badass shit and it looks completely effortless, but he wasn't happy with the direction of the band and he left. So in comes Giuseppe Capalupo. So on the last three records, they've got a new keyboardist, new guitarist, now new drummer. So that is changing half of the band. But for these guys, I think it really suited them. There isn't all this acrimony and bad blood. You know, Daniel did kind of leave in a bit of a huff and because he disagreed with the guys. But Giuseppe's addition has been a huge improvement for this band. He came in and recorded a full album's worth of drums, re-recorded Daniel's parts in two days. This is the kind of talent these dudes have. So while sometimes member changes can be a bad thing or a sign of a band failing, it's done nothing but improve this band's kind of stamina. Yeah, man, I I, I did uh, enjoy listening to uh, Worldwide and to the Key of Evergreen, two songs you sent me to listen to. Um, and it's sort of, it, it's weird because I think this is where part of me is, if I just didn't know this was The Devil Wears Prada and just listened to the songs, I'd be like, yeah, this is cool. This is a cool kind of like... Pretty, pretty cool. Hardcore sort of rock band I'd never heard before nothing really new nothing all that interesting but they're doing it well it's good but yeah to kind of be like no this is the devil wears prada this is now what they are that's where it was i guess a little bit harder but again this is all in one week i'm going through this entire journey in one week so i do respect the band for being able to continue to evolve and stay alive in the scene because we've talked about many many bands that have crashed and burned the seat and has just eaten them up and spit them out never to be seen again Here's a band, as you said, came along a little later and maybe just had a little bit of a better business sense to find a way to survive and still be a working band in today's scene is very impressive. So in October 2019, the band released The Act, which is their most recent record. They do have another one only a few months away, but this is the most recent complete work of theirs. And again, these member changes are important because now Capalupo and Gehring are full-time members by this point. No longer just session musicians. The band is back to being a consistent six-piece band. And interestingly, Gehring and their guitarist, Kyle Cypress, actually wrote the lead single for this record entirely on their own. So it doesn't have Mike's input or Jeremy's input or anyone else. Gehring is a little bit more involved in the lyricism on this one. And you can see he's kind of like almost Jordan Fish-esque impact on the band as the keys guy. You know, he's he's pulling his weight, he's earned his place. But I really love the complete change in direction on this record. There's still the heavy parts. Some of the sounds they started on Transit Blues that they really refined. You hear Sierra K pop up on this, who'd been out of the scene for a really long time, you know, thinking way back to If It Means A Lot To You by A Day To Remember, which we spoke about, like that's 13 years ago. Um, but I just, I love the maturity on this record and I really love this lead single chemical. Doesn't sound like the Devil Wears Prada, but I'm into it anyway. Chemical, I fight, 
you get to see a little bit more of Mike Haranica on guitar, which is something that's popped up in the latter years of the band. So again, they're finding ways to break out of their mold and it may not be for everyone, may not be for someone like you that you know had to jam all this into a week, but I really did love this record and I am looking forward to seeing where they go with the next one. Yeah, that, that song Chemical is such a song that's written by that keyboard guy hey like this it's it's like it's for radio it, rock it's a radio rock yeah it's a rock radio track and i like personally i i find this stuff really fucking boring just my my general just doesn't it's not a knock on the devil wears prada just these songs in general these these kind of mass kind of produced rock ballady songs i just find them so one-dimensional and so boring and weirdly even though like guys like joey in there over-the-top kind of production is gone these songs to me are where the production element is so far like perfected that the band seem like they're doing less like like the the people actually playing the instruments and we found this when we went and watched bringers live as well where initially we were just like uh where are the amps or anything <laughs> like there's just nothing on stage anymore everything's pre-recorded everything's triggered everything is perfect which actually creates a really cool listening experience at a show but you lose some of that kind of like watching a musician actually play and nail their instrument and this song and watching the film clip for this song i felt that a little bit just kind of like what are you guys doing like this is clearly all been written by the keyboard guy he's done all the hard work for you basically insert guitar into your hand here hold this chord done like it's just all a little bit uh easy and i do find it hilarious seeing Mike on the guitar, man. It just brought me back all the way to those memories of seeing the Getaway Plan and Matt (laughs) (laughs) when Getaway Plan opened for Circus of Five and My Chemical Romance, and he wanted to be a lead singer, but also (laughs) play guitar, man. And it just, man, it didn't work. The guitar wasn't plugged in. I think his strap broke at one point. Nothing was coming through. He sort of tripped and stumbled and fell his way through that entire song. It was a complete flop. And I just find it hilarious when after, especially a band like this, there's a band that's been going for now almost 15 years and Mike's like, I play guitar now, guys. I want a guitar. <laughs> I want to be in the clip with a guitar. I, I don't know, live, I assume, in some songs Yeah, he live also... he does it. And he has been doing it for a while. There's been a few songs over probably like the last seven, eight years, maybe longer, maybe even 10 years where he'll, he'll have the guitar. I remember watching one of those rig rundowns on YouTube and like the two guitarists from The Devil Wears Prada did theirs and it was all like really serious and all this gear and then mike was kind of like a little kid being like can i show you my guitar and amp too <laughs> what was it guitar and tuna <laughs> yeah, yeah that was it yeah one <laughs> yeah. one distortion pedal and that was it man like i get it like for, to just be a front man for that long would be a little bit annoying and most people uh even, like singers especially probably did come from a background of playing an instrument whether it be guitar whether it be keyboard uh or piano you know they they probably came from that background so to then to be like from a 16 year old you told me you know that's when he's starting out and it's like you're the lead singer mike that's your fucking job whereas he's kind of like i I, I love guitar as well guys like can i play with you in some uh some of the songs please can i come to i actually listened to this full album the act um i sort of skipped that middle chunk but yeah while doing some housework just chucked on the whole album and it is it is good man like it's a good album it's just uh it's a totally different different band like if you had just said oh man there's this new band in the scene that have kind of come out and they brought out this album the act and i listened to it i'd be like yeah that sounds uh, kind of on point for what 
bands who think they're hardcore or metal are doing now when they're not either of those things anymore um but yeah it just it, i just find the whole thing a little a little little boring a little one-dimensional i think it's really nice of us to disagree at times because it doesn't yeah. happen very often <laughs> it doesn't happen often whether you love the olds whether you love the news there's a lot to get into yeah give me pig squeals any day of the week i'll be there <laughs> right on right on well before we wrap things up there's one song i wanted to bring attention to and it's kind of hard not to in this scene because punk goes pop this series has brought us so many amazing songs some absolute dog shit ones too but every one of these punk goes records has some big time bangers and the devil wears prada are responsible for one of the best ones of all time i think this was on the punk goes crunk record which was a little bit questionable to be honest few white boys dropping the N-bomb and really just like people knew better by this time. Mm. But thankfully, we got the Devil Wears Prada's version of Still Fly by Big Timers. Now, people might not know the original by Big Timers. What's up? Fresh is our turn, baby. But... This version by The Devil Wears Prada is so good because it's that perfect thing that you can do with a cover song. Make it your own. You either have to be bang on to the original or completely doing your own thing. You can't do something in the middle because it'll sound like, oh, you tried a bit hard or you didn't try hard enough. These guys got this big timer song. It sounds like the original thing, but it sounds like The Devil Wears Prada doing it. And that's what I absolutely love. So here's Still Fly, originally by Big Timers, performed by The Devil Wears Prada. And in true testament to fan service, the band did play that live back in the day, which is awesome. <laughs> it was always fun when when bands like this played the the cover that they were most known for. You know, whichever part of their band when they whether they did it on one of the Punk Goes albums or whether they just had them like Four Year Strong just had fucking a whole album of them. Yeah, fans loved hearing this shit, man. We loved hearing these hardcore or emo bands playing these covers of completely different. Uh, different music. I don't think I ever listened to the uh, Punk Goes Crunk uh, album. Not sure what year that came out. It's shit. But uh, yeah, uh, some questionable uh, things pop up there, that's for sure. Oh, and it was at a time where they definitely knew better as well. Like I'm I'm not one to usually be like, it's 2022, what are you doing? But, but some things it's like, no, no, we knew in 2008 that white people don't say the N-word. Hmm. We did know better and putting it on a record, that record going through a record label, going to shops, being distributed, there were enough people who knew, who should have known better, who absolutely did, but just saw that sick dollar, a bit of bunts for their, mm. for their bottom line. Bunsen burner, nice little earner. Other than kind of finishing on that still fly cover, is there anything else you want to, you know, mention about one of your kind of favorite bands before we wrap things up? I'm all good, man. I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. Me too, man. I really enjoyed listening to that early stuff. It was a, a step back in time and uh, cool to listen to something just fucking brutally heavy for the week. Cause we haven't done many of those bands throughout this pod, but it was a lot of fun, man. And I will go back and listen to that Scorpion Deathlock outro time and time and time again. It's so, so good. 
So that's it this week for the Violence and Sunshine podcast. As always, check us out on Instagram at Violence and Sunshine. Really appreciate everyone that's been leaving us a five-star rating lately. And all the feedback we've been receiving has been really, really cool. Thank you so much for reaching out. Uh, Continue to spread the word, tell your friends about it, and subscribe uh, on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you join us next week where we'll be exploring some of our favorite bands from Melbourne's emo scene. Bands like Closure in Moscow, The Getaway Plan, Carpathian and more. So it should be a bit of fun, a bit more hometown talk, if you will. I'm Paul. And I'm Nick. All stars could be brighter, all hearts could be warmer. <laughs>